up, I talk with Roger Briggs, longtime farrier, physics teacher, rock climber, and environmentalist, about his new book on the evolution of human consciousness. But first, a look at some recent news in science. about the microbiome is that it's a beneficial ecosystem living inside us. That may not be entirely true. A team of researchers at the National Institutes for Health in Washington, D.C. has been studying the causes of aging in fruit flies. Recently, they looked at the role that the fly's microbiome plays in the process of getting old for a fly. The scientists raised matched groups of flies in a normal lab environment and in one where the fly's food contained antibiotics effectively eliminating the bacterial microbiome. One way to figure out what's going on in an experiment like this is to look at the genes that are active in both groups. This is called gene expression. In earlier work, this team had done this type of study using flies of different ages. They started with young adults, 10 days old, and looked at gene expression, then repeated the experiment at five-day intervals. They found a characteristic pattern of changes in gene expression over the course of a fly's life, which is about 45 days. This makes sense, right? When you're a young fly, just getting ready to reproduce and healthy, different genes will be active than when you're an old, decrepit animal. So from earlier studies, the scientists had developed fingerprints, if you will, of the activity of over a thousand genes whose expression changes reliably over their lifespan. To their amazement, they found that flies raised on antibiotics, who therefore lacked a bacterial population living in their guts, did not show many of these characteristic patterns of aging. There were two major groups of genes that didn't show the normal age-related changes in the treated flies. First, in most animals, stress response genes show a pattern of decreased activity over the lifespan. In other words, we become less able to respond to stresses of normal life, which can include things like temperature fluctuations, hunger, or chemical toxicity. Second, in most animals, the immune system becomes more active with age. This results in the increased inflammation typical of aging, which is thought to contribute to many of the diseases associated with age. The results of this study demonstrated that these two processes are not inevitable features of aging. Instead, it looks like a lifetime of exposures to various bacteria in the gut can exacerbate the processes that cause us to age. These results raise the question of whether the pattern in gene expression due to the microbiome found in flies will also be true in other animals, including humans. The researchers did look at this question, and they started by identifying human versions of the genes whose patterns had changed in the flies. More than 90% of human aging disorders are linked to the human versions of the genes that in the fly affect the life in a normal lab environment where they have a rich microbiome. That's kind of astounding that so many of our genes are similar to the fly genes. So I wouldn't say get rid of your microbiome yet. We know that long-term exposure to antibiotics is not good for us. And one thing the scientists didn't look at was the role of good versus bad bacteria. One conclusion from this study is that like everything else in life, the microbiome has an upside and a downside. 
Welcome to the show, Roger. I'm speaking with Roger Briggs, local author of a new book called Emerging World, The Evolution of Consciousness and the Future of Humanity, which is a big topic and will scratch the surface. But there's a lot of interesting science and then extrapolations from the science into areas that people in the sciences often fear to tread. But I think it's important for us as scientists to take a stand. And in fact, one of my favorite quotes from Einstein goes something like this, science can tell us what is, but science can't tell us what should be. And Roger, I think you're taking a stab at telling us what should be in this book. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Beth. I think that's a great summation. So let's start off by talking about the evolution of consciousness. You dig into some literature that, to tell the truth, I was completely unfamiliar with and fascinated to read about, um, starting with Jean Gebser, if I'm saying that correctly, and then some later, um, I guess I would describe them as philosophers. So could you talk about those stages of human consciousness? I think those are important to start with. Yeah. Um the book really begins by looking at evolution and just trying to expand the notion of evolution beyond the, you know, what we learned in biology class, that there's also been an evolution of the universe, which astrophysics gets into, and the evolution of culture, which is paleoanthropology. So I try to start to paint the picture of evolution being a much bigger and much more pervasive thing than just what happened to life on earth. The second chapter, it's called Consciousness 101, and I've had friends literally laugh at me for saying I'm going to try to discuss consciousness in a chapter. But partly the point of this book is just to raise awareness of this idea of consciousness, that it's something that we need to start talking about and become aware of. And um, I think it's one of the most important factors in the world today. So it's a survey of philosophy and psychology and neuroscience and Buddhism and physics and all these different takes on consciousness. And in the end, I think it fleshes out a, a sort of a picture, uh, kind of like the wise men um, all touching the elephant, different parts of the elephant. And um, you get the idea of what, what it is overall, but there's, there's just not a strict definition. But then I go into the theory of Jean Gebser, uh, not well known in this country, but he was... Um, a German Swiss uh, working especially between about 1930 and 1950 on this idea of the evolution of consciousness, that, that human consciousness has been evolving in the time that 
we've been around here, which we now know to be about 3 million years uh, in the archeological record. So he, I first discovered Gebser maybe 15 years ago and he presents this five stage um, theory of the evolution of consciousness. And some listeners may be familiar with the term the integral consciousness or the integral philosophy. And this really all comes from Gebser. I, I don't think he's been credited enough with that, but, but he proposed that uh, the more recent stages, the more familiar stages were uh, the mythical, which is the stage in which people found meaning through stories. And this, this syncs up in the archeological record with when we think um, speech and uh, spoken language evolved. Um, and so humans found meaning through stories. And then um, later it became what he called the mental consciousness, which is our, in his scheme, our, our current regime and which science, it gave rise to science and all the theories and explanations we have of the world. And causality is a very big piece of this, that we have this idea that everything has a cause, chains of causality. Uh, but then he proposed and he was a little discouraged about the events of the 20th century, the wars and such, and um, proposed that we're on the verge of moving into a new structure of consciousness, as he called it. And this is what he called the integral consciousness. <clears throat> so I was quite taken with this theory. And some years later, maybe 10 years ago, I discovered uh, a writer named Merlin Donald, who uh, is a cognitive psychologist, mainstream academic guy, well-published, well uh, also a big background in paleoanthropology and neuroscience, so rather eclectic. And I'm reading this book called um, A Mind So Rare, his second book actually, and he's talking about these stages in the evolution of consciousness. And he names it the, he uses the term the mimetic and then the mythical, and then he called it the theoretic instead of the, the mental. But they just lined up exactly with what Gebser was saying 30 years earlier. And um, for a few years, I was thinking about getting in touch with Merlin Donald and just asking him like, hey, are you aware of, I mean, you've read <laughs> Gebser? Like you've come up with something almost exactly like his theory. And, I finally did get in touch, tracked him down, sent an email, figured I may not hear anything, but he responded and we started a long um, email relationship, uh, which was just great. And the short answer is that he had not heard of Gebser and I'm positive that's true. And he said, a colleague of mine in Europe was just telling me I really should look into Gebser. So I found it quite uncanny that these two lined up so perfectly. And this is the kind of thing in science, as you know, that we look for, you know, when we arrive at the same kind of picture from very different beginnings. Right. And you point that out in your book, in fact, that sometimes, and not infrequently, in human science and other endeavors, people arrive at the same place from different directions, probably because different cultures have been evolving. And um, as you, you, I want to back up and say that you make in your first chapter, you, you do a great job of covering the physical evolution of our species. But then we are a really strange species because not only do we evolve through natural selection and physical mutations of our DNA, but we use our brains to develop this thing we call culture. 
And then that evolves and shapes us as well. Sometimes it might shape our DNA. There's a few isolated incidents of that, but mostly it's kind of external to us. And so then we live in this external format and, you know, like you're saying, different thinkers can arrive at the same conclusion and then that can push that evolutionary process along. Yeah. And that uh, kind of revelation that our environment is actually not, instead of being just a physical environment, it's really a cultural or a social environment. The physical environment, we've pretty much kind of nullified its effect on us, but evolution is now continuing within this social context. And, and so we, we arrive at this very interesting relationship between culture and consciousness. And I say in the book, and I haven't had anybody dispute this yet, that uh, that relationship is something like this, that culture is the external manifestation of consciousness. It's what shows up in the world. And what shows up in the world is underlying that is consciousness. So, you know, as goes one, so, so goes the other. Right. And there is definitely that reciprocal relationship and because of our continuing influence on our physical world, which again, you do a great job of describing, not that we really need to, to know, it, it's pretty well accepted and well described, you know, for many years now, how we're kind of trashing our environment and we really need to change that if our species is to continue. Um, and I think it's important, as you point out, and I wanna talk about more in depth that our consciousness is going to have to change to allow us to change our culture to expedite that process of yeah. working on the environmental impacts we're having yeah to get out of the mess we've created yeah so and... yeah so tell us tell us this audience some of the steps that you um project in terms of that happening well part of the point is that to make the case that there is such a thing as the evolution of consciousness going on and I end up developing with adding the, the additional piece of the work of Arthur Young and all sort of tied together with the archeological record. I propose a, what really is a new framework of anthropology um, of, of four stages, four primary stages. These are very broad stages that we've gone through. And to understand the events of today, you need to understand this fourth stage, which I term the material stage. Um, it's closely related to Gebser's uh, mental stage and, and Merlin Donald's theoretic stage, but it's broader and it, it really dates to the beginning of civilization. And one of the things that, that correlates with it is the development of, of power structures in the social milieu. And power structures, i.e. emperors, high priests, slavery, all, all these things. I mean, how did they build pyramids uh, with a lot of slaves? And that required someone to be in charge. And I try to make the case that our current regime of civilization that we're in right now is really 5,000 years old. You know, we tend to think we're so sophisticated and modern, but um, basically the same kinds of patterns, particularly the power structures and the patriarchy, um, the, the tendency to try to dominate dominate nature, a disregard for nature, all of these things which became Western civilization is still with us today. And I think we're all aware that it's collapsing. It is not serving us and it's gonna do us in. And so hence the new, the fifth stage. Um, and it's been called the integral 
uh, consciousness. Um, that's really Gebser's term. And I think a lot of people are kind of misusing that today. So I preferred to call it the planetary cu culture and consciousness. Right, and right. so this is really the crusade that I'm on is to try to spread the word that there is this emerging thing called the planetary consciousness or whatever we shall call it. Um, and what does that look like? And it's been a whole chapter kind of trying to flesh out what this higher consciousness is. But it has a lot to do with connectivity, not only among humans in the sense that we're not just this isolated single um, player you know, battling for our own self-interest, but um, we are very connected and, and connected with nature. Uh, it's very much about a bigger perspective on things rather than just the little old me, what's good for me. It's kind of a we perspective. Um, it's a perspective of wholeness. Uh, it, it is integral, meaning that it is putting together all of the things that we have. And one of the things that Gebser and really all of the developmentalists have emphasizes that these stages are not something we move through and then leave behind. For example, the mythical stage where storytelling is, is the highest level of meaning. We still have the mythical consciousness within us. And of course, stories are still one of the most important uh, ways of, of finding meaning. Yes, um, absolutely. And allowing people to relate to each other. That's, that's well um, known in neuroscience and psychology. Yeah, yeah. And the mental consciousness, the, the uh, use of logic and rationality and um, explanations and theory and all of science. I mean, science is pretty powerful and it's, it's based on this kind of logic. But Gebser talks a lot about um, a causality, like moving beyond causality. And lo and behold, the quantum physicists are now talking about entanglement, where it's not like billiard balls colliding where one thing affects another, like things are connected more like jello, like you'd wiggle something in one place and the whole thing wiggles. Right, that's right. Apparently a little better description of what's really happening in, in the universe, the world we live in. Yeah, and I think we're just beginning to scratch the surface in terms of quantum science um, in, in our ability to understand how that does affect the world that we live in. I just heard um, an interview with a guy who published a paper in science about um, characterizing quantum effects in a solution containing larger, something larger than, I think it was an ion, something larger than a subatomic particle. So gradually the science is catching up to this idea that everything is interconnected. And um, as you address in the book, for a while people have been suggesting that quantum interactions might underlie the uh, phenomenon of human consciousness. Yeah, the work of Roger Penrose. And, right. Um, but it's certainly a factor in this whole idea of the world as a collection of separate inert objects in space. Is, it, that's the conception of the world or the worldview of the material consciousness. It's all just a bunch of objects that we can dominate. It's all this kind of lifeless and it doesn't matter if we hurt other living things. Um, so again, this, this is really just not serving us anymore. And, um, you know, my, the rest of my life's work is to try to do what I can to contribute to humanity evolving this higher consciousness um, that's very compassion and empathy based. 
um, and you know has sacred regard for nature and, and all living things. Yeah, I think that's really critical stage that all of us are going to have to take part in at some level. And for the audience that might think this is science light or this is some hand waving, there is actually a lot of good neuroscience that is based on functional magnetic resonance imaging that shows that people, when they're having spiritual um, events in their life or sensations of awe or wonder, um, there is there are real things going on in the brain to explain that and we can use those as sort of a springboard in terms of making these connections to a next level of consciousness that we're going to need and I also love that you pulled in some modern economists who are again approaching this same idea from a totally different angle that of economy yeah yeah, the last chapter is really intended to sort of say, okay, this we fleshed out this whole idea of higher consciousness and the fifth stage of planetary consciousness. But so what are we going to do? Exactly. You know? And so I like I wanted to start with the economists because um, they've looked a lot at like what are we going to need to do to survive on this planet from a very kind of nuts and bolts perspective and. Um, you know, the work of Kate Rayworth is a great glimpse of sort of what we've done to the planet and, you know, what the requirements will be both in the um, social sector as well as the, the planetary boundaries, what we need to do. But in the end, um, after about the third of the way through that chapter, I move on and say, okay, well, these people really got it nailed. In fact, there's a document called the Earth Charter that's like, this is it. This is, this is what we need to do. But then I, the question I raise is, how are we going to do this? Right. That's um, a big question. And, and so we have the political system. Hmm, well, it's, it's not functioning too well. Right, right right. Now. And, or we can get behind some cause. We can get behind climate change or world hunger or, or so many good causes. But that's a very fragmented kind of perspective. And there's some kind of a whole, a whole perspective effort that we need. And my conclusion is it's, we have to change culture. We have to change to a planetary culture, which underlying that, and it will support a planetary consciousness. So as I mentioned in the last chapter, I call it the culture project. Um, so how, you know, if, if the culture changes, if people's culture and consciousness change, then they'll vote the right way or they'll, they'll, they'll adopt the right practices in their life that are not having an impact on the planet. They'll do the right thing. So we can either take a sort of piecemeal approach and try to attack 50 different problems as 50 yeah, new ones crop yeah, up in the yeah. meantime, or get to the underlying fabric, which really is culture and consciousness. And so that's, I've concluded after a lifetime of pondering this, that that is the hope. Um, well, and I do know that you've been spending years thinking about this and formulating approaches. And so for the listeners that might be thinking, scratching their heads, just as you were saying, what can I do? I want to point out that you have been developing a really fantastic resource on your website, which I will link to in the show notes that give people so many different options and resources and paths to follow to get started on this goal. Yeah, so in, in the last chapter, which I was finishing writing about last November, not that long ago, I kind of flesh out, I call them three global initiatives 
and describe um, a platform sort of like a new Facebook or, um, you know, an attempt to use the, the, the very powerful digital technologies to reach people, to change culture. And since that time, um, the concept has evolved quite a bit. And I started working with a group of people in early January, about six months ago, on what we're now calling the Planet Project. And it really is the, the grand culture project um, and to try to build some kind of a digital platform that not only provides positive culture and uh, you know we want to engage all of the young creatives that are producing this fantastic YouTube videos, but that convey these values of people who are kind to each other and compassionate and who uh, care about animals and who who are in love with nature and just to depict these things and um, also to start to grow a community of people that say yeah i'm i haven't given up on this i i want to try to do something i want to join with other people who haven't given up as well absolutely and, to, and that was the word that just came to mind is community when you have a community to support you then it's much easier to jump in and take those first steps so yeah, um, yeah. we're gonna have to leave it there roger but i will link to your website and for listeners that want to read your book, call up and make a pledge during the pledge drive because we will have several copies of Roger's book to hand out. So thanks so much, Roger, and maybe we can touch base again and see how this planetary project is going in the not too distant future. Sounds good, Beth. Thanks a lot. That was Roger Briggs talking to me about his new book, Emerging World. Roger offers a new understanding of our species crisis today and points the way to a better future for humanity and life on the planet. His book is one of the many pledge drive gifts you can get by pledging your support to KGNU in the summer membership drive starting tomorrow. I'll link to his book as well as to his website, which provides in-depth coverage of the material in the book, as well as actions you can take personally. edition of How on Earth. I'm the executive producer and I produce this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Cat Stevens. You can visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, links to material from the show, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.